one of the first things I actually saw when I was in the water was like an old ship anchor. And of course I yelled up to my um, father, there's an anchor. And of course he didn't want to believe me at first. I am Patty Callahan and welcome to the podcast, the untold story behind surviving Savannah, a novel about an 1838 steamship disaster that many refer to as the Titanic of the South. This podcast is an in-depth exploration into the true stories behind the novel. You'll hear interviews with some of the foremost experts on the myth and lore of the mystical city of Savannah, shipwreck treasure hunting, museum curation of maritime history, and the astounding real life family that inspired this novel. I'm the author, Patty Callahan. Welcome to my episode on shipwreck hunting and the discovery of the treasure of the steamship Pulaski with the CEO and president of Endurance Exploration, Micah Eldred. Micah specializes in historic shipwreck research and recovery of lost ships containing valuable cargoes. Micah lives in Clearwater, Florida, but travels all over the world for interesting finds. He was the first person I called when I saw the headline that stated, Pulaski Steamship found by Endurance Exploration Group. Once I started talking to him, I was not only fascinated by his search for the Pulaski, but also about his other projects, about why and how they look for lost ships. So this is a two-part interview where we will first explore the why and how of shipwreck hunting. And then in part two, we will talk about finding the Pulaski and what that means for my novel. Hi, Micah. So I want to start having you tell all of us the story you told me about you as a child and how you came to love the idea of finding shipwrecks. I grew up in Florida. I was born and raised here. And so uh, my family was always around the water. My grandparents um, had a house on the on the uh, water here on, on the west coast of Florida. And so I grew up around boats and, um, you know, sailing with my grandfather and family and father and everything. And um, I earned the right to have my first boat when I think I was about seven or eight years old. And um, one summer, I think I was about maybe about 11 or 12 years old. My father and his best friend who who have been friends since they were um, started kindergarten together is when, when they they met each other and actually lived in this in the neighborhood together. When I was about 11 or 12 years old, they decided that they were going to take a sailing trip. And of course I was going to go with them. Um, so we sailed my grandfather's boat from the West coast of Florida here down to a place called the dry Tortugas, which is a chain of islands that, that are about 75 miles West of Key West. So it's, it's kind of a um, secluded part of the keys. There's no bridge or anything that goes out there. You have to take a boat or, or seaplane or something out there. And there's a big uh, civil war era fort that's built out there. And so it's a, it's something to go go see, but not too many people get to go see it. And of course, there's a lot of reefs and diving and snorkeling and things. And so we decided that we were going to sail down there uh, for a couple of weeks and go exploring. And so that's the story. And what what happened was um, took us a few days to sail down there. And when we got to the outskirts of Dry Tortugas, there there's some reef systems before you come into the islands. And I was pretty pretty anxious to get in the water and and snorkel because the water's very clear and the reefs are beautiful and everything. And so as we were coming in, um, we stopped the boat and, and, um, I hopped in with the, 
snorkeling gear on and and they just kind of pulled me behind the boat very slowly really really what we're doing is probably look just looking for lobster or fish or just looking at the reef and things like that but um one of the first things i actually saw when i was in the water was like an old ship anchor and of course i yelled up to my um father there's an anchor and of course he didn't want to believe me at first and and so um i finally convinced him that 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 was really true and we uh got the idea that we'd try to lift this anchor of course it was quite quite large and quite heavy so you know my job was to tie a rope to it and then uh my dad and his friend could, could try and pull it up which they they somehow managed to do but but um i guess that was my first shipwreck find or discovery if you will and that that story's always stuck with me i i always remember that trip and finding that that anchor and i think the anchor today is still in my dad's front front yard and my mom never liked it very much but but uh, we always did <laughs> I mean, I, when you first told me that story, it made so much sense to me because I believe that the things we loved as a child or the things that fascinated us before the world told us who we needed to be are the things that come back to us, right? For me, it's reading. And so I started writing for you. You found this anchor at such a young age and your dad kept it this whole time. He kept it in his front yard. I mean, that's extraordinary. So how long was it from then until you said, I'm actually going to start looking for real shipwrecks, like make this a business, make this something I do. How long was it between those two things? When did you start actually hunting for shipwrecks? Well, I started like five minutes after I found that anchor. <laughs> I was <laughs> excited about answer. that. But, but um, actually, I suppose... Um, turning it into a business was 30 years later. So that I agree with what you're saying is some of the things that impact your life as a child. That was one story. Of course, having um, a small boat at, at a young age gave you a real sense of freedom that, you know, you could go and, and just have a general sense of wanting to explore. And, you know, I couldn't wait until summer came because I would be out of prison, so to speak, and then, you know, could go on, go on the boat. And basically maybe, maybe some of that was, not as responsible as my grandparents should have been and watch me, but I, I, I had a big, I had a big playground so I could go and explore and go see some different things. So yeah, that does stick with you, but it, the idea of transitioning from a kid and finding a few things like that into a business, um, that didn't happen until I was in my forties. Because you started the company endurance, right? Explorations and right. you're the CEO, right? Did that's I get right. that right? But that's not your real job. Listeners, you can't see my quotation marks, but um, that's not your real job. Your real job is in securities. So this, it's not a hobby. It's a, it's a full-blown business. Did you start that after securities or at the same time? It's, it's just fascinating to me that you pursued something like this that most kids dream about, but you're literally diving to the bottom of the ocean to find these shipwrecks. So like most young people, I, you know, pursued a path down education and then yeah. your first job. And I was always fascinated with, with finance actually. And so um, I actually started a, a job at a securities firm. Um, in 2000, I moved back to Florida and um, started my financial service businesses that have grown a little bit since then. And, you know, really I was focused on that, building that business for um, about 10 years and then I had, you know, saved up a bit of money and um, had some infrastructure in place here with, with those businesses. And then I started thinking about 
shipwreck salvage again. And very few companies that were doing this, you know, like from a business perspective of actually trying to do it. And I evaluated those companies and saw what I thought they were doing that was right or right, good, the good and the bad. And, um, and then started the process of forming this company called Endurance. It's fascinating. And we're going to get to the Pulaski in a minute, but you and I, when we very first talked, I know we agreed that finding a wreck isn't just about finding the treasure. It's about finding a story that finding a shipwreck can completely change the narrative of how that ship went down, what happened that night, what was carried on it. So I want you to tell me about one of your favorite finds that changed the story of the disaster of the ship that went down. Boy, that's a tough question because all of the finds are my favorite. Um, they just, uh, they all are a little bit different flavor. But w- one thing I think to your point is that in almost every case, there's a surprise and, and it can yeah. vary from project to project, but it might be a surprise in um, the location of where the ship actually ended up. You know, you do a lot of research and you have a thesis about where the ship may have sank and it can be a surprise that it wasn't there when you have data that says it boy it sure it sure should have been here other surprises we we did a project off of the coast of new england and we had two data points the captain and this was this was mid 1800 so there you know this was pretty they had good navigation but of course not by today's standards um and they were coming across the Atlantic, so they they didn't have good like um, reset points. But the captain estimated where where the boat sank, and then another boat that picked up the survivors or some of the survivors estimated where where it went down. And they were the points were about twenty miles apart, and so we we thought we would be able to find that that wreck uh, because we have pretty good data. When we went to look for it, it, it actually was exactly in the middle of the between the two, huh. and we we found it like on the first day. I don't know if there's a favorite shipwreck or favorite thing that changed the story, but it adds to the historical record. And there's a lot of things that come in into the story that aren't necessarily in the, the newspaper archives and other things yeah. that are, uh, you're like, wow, that, that, that's pretty interesting. And it can be anything from like navigational data to finding the an artifact that adds something to the story that you didn't really expect expect to find or that was almost impossible, you know, that it turned up. The the one artifact um, that I've shown you on the Pulaski is sort of a, I think, once in a lifetime sort of find too. Yep. And we're going to talk about that because that's that was the one that gave me head to toe chills. Is there a ship that you still haven't found that you're trying to find that's kind of a life goal to find? There's about a thousand of them, I think. So I could come up with a long list of shipwrecks that I'd like to find. I have a I have a um, a good friend who's a mentor that's in the same business, and he lives in um, in Europe, and we frequently compare notes. But he's his business is much more um, more well capitalized and more sophisticated, so they run much more more projects than I do, and they have bigger capabilities. But um, a couple he's beat me to that that were on the top of my list, but, you know, you have a good laugh and go on. So, um, yeah. yeah, there's certainly some projects that we'd like to get to that I think would add a lot to 
the historical record and their stories that should be told that haven't been told yet. So over the last five years, your company has developed an entire research database, I think of over 1400 ships that are known to be lost with valuable cargoes with gold and silver and artifacts. How in the world do you choose which one to go after? Which ship you're going to choose to spend all your time and money and resources? Because I know with the Pulaski, I mean, you have to have a crew, you have to get your ship, your boats out there, you have to it, it, it's not like you can do 20 of these at once. You have to decide where to put your money and energy. How do you choose which ones to go after? You're exactly right. And it's incredibly expensive, like the ship time and time to have all these crew and search time, uh, particularly if you're in deeper water, it's, it's incredibly expensive. So you have to, um, you really have to fine tune that. For us, um, if I can jump back to when I first started the company, that was that was one of the big questions. What you just asked, like, what what do we do? I mean, we, by some estimates, I think the United Nations has published a, a paper that they estimate throughout the history of man since they've been going to sea in boats and ships that there there may be as many as three million shipwrecks on the ocean floor, which is a, which sounds astounding, but it it probably is actually true. But of course, most of those are not carrying gold or silver or things that would be a value today. Most of those are boats that were transporting, you know, a cargo of something that's not, not existing or wouldn't survive underwater for hundreds or thousands of years. And so you have to distill that huge list down to something that's um, going to make sense. And so for us, we, the first thing that I did was I actually hired a couple of archival research people that were familiar with, the shipwreck research process um, had done this before. And so we spent the first few years, there was no searching or looking for shipwrecks. It was just archival research. And we, we developed this sort of database and it, it kind of came down to maybe some common sense things in the sense that um, one, we had to have some archival data that said it had a cargo that was a value. So we weren't going to just go look for, you know, some, phantom pirate ship. It had to have a manifest that said this was loaded on the boat and it's a it's a value today. So it had to have a, a documented cargo. Second, there had to be enough sinking data in the in the archives to give us a sense that we could find the wreck. So for example, if a, if a ship left um, Europe and it never showed up in America and that was its voyage and there's nothing to say really where it went or where it was lost, that's not something we'd go look for. There had to be some pieces of data in that that would help us narrow that search down to an area that was confined enough that we could take today's technology and go search there in a, in a cost-effective way. So um, that was the second sort of element. And the third thing is that it had to have the right legal profile, meaning that if we spent all this money looking for something and we found it and we were able to salvage it, we had to be able to keep it or keep a significant portion of it. It had to make economic sense. And so that took when you when you sift down all of those requirements into something that um, might make a business sense. You know, you you can take your plus thousand number of racks down into the into the few dozens that I think that you want to convert into a viable project. So, can we find it? Can we keep it? That's pretty common sense. Well, for you, that's why you run a business and I write books because I would be like, I want to find the one that has the best story. Right. Right. So you have these three parameters, and I want to find the one that. The story hasn't been told or the story is buried down there with the artifacts like like we've been working on. Um, I know that depending on the ship, 
you have different kinds of equipment. So for the Pulaski, you know, that was a dive. You could dive, you know, divers, not me, but divers can dive a hundred feet deep, right? They can go down there with a, with a double tank and, but other dives, you have to literally design the equipment and you've done that. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So actually Pulaski is one of the kind of the exception for us um, because it's what I, what I call a more of a shallow water wreck, even though it's a, it's more than a hundred feet deep. It's um, like you said, it, it's, it can be accessed by, you know, basically scuba gear or maybe some tech, tech diving. Most of the other projects we work on are in um, what I call deeper water, meaning that they're not accessible by divers. And um, for us, that's actually good, a good thing because two, two reasons. One, when, when wrecks sink, they're not affected by weather and storms very much. And so, like, for example, if a wreck's in um, a thousand meters of water and a hurricane goes over the top, there's no wave action down at the bottom. It, the ocean's still, the water's still. And so what that means is it doesn't scatter a wreck over, um, could be literally miles in some of these shallow water wrecks. So the, the deep water wrecks are more interesting to us because generally when we find them, it's like um, the wreck the wreck is degraded, but it's it's all in one particular spot, like the, the size and the footprint of the wreck wreck itself. A wreck like the Pulaski, it's actually, as you know from your research, it exploded, the, bro- the boat split in two pieces, it drifted for days, it spilled things out as it went along, eventually pieces of it sank in different um, parts, but it's wreck, so to speak, is literally mile, miles scattered over um, miles and miles and buried under, you know, sand. And so if I were to take you and, and could take you to the bottom of the ocean and, and look at Pulaski, you would you would say, where, where's the wreck? I don't see anything. Yeah. And I say, well, it's, it's scattered and it's understand. So we like the deeper water projects better. And that has required us to engineer some tooling and things that are, that are really special for, for working in those type of waters. Well, I know when I first found out about the Pulaski, I thought I'm going to dive down there. And then I saw the videos and I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> Have you... what, what changed your mind? Well, I could tell, uh, you know, it was over a hundred feet deep. They yeah. had on, you know, two tanks. Yeah. Um, they were in very dark water. You know, they could only see by the flashlights they were carrying. And I knew it was way past my s- snorkeling skill set. So have yeah, you gone down there? The, actually, I have not. Um, I haven't, I haven't um, made a dive on the Pulaski yet. And I, I probably should, but um, I just haven't Do done you, it. It's from what everybody's telling me and from the, the video and things I'm seeing, it's actually a very nice, like the water's really clear out there. The pieces of the wreck that are distinguishable are the, some of the machinery pieces are still, still exposed. So there's a lot of fish and things around that. So I think it's a nice dive and um, yeah, you would maybe want to get a little bit of brush up on your scuba stuff. Yeah, I think so. This was part one of a two-part interview with Micah Eldred where we explore the why and how of shipwreck hunting. In part two, we will talk about finding the Pulaski and what that means for our story. Thank you so much for joining me today on the untold story behind surviving Savannah. If you liked what you heard, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as that really helps new listeners find our show. Make sure to subscribe to The Untold Story of Surviving Savannah wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can visit penguinrandomhouse.com for more on my new book, Surviving Savannah. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold. 
This has been a production of Penguin Random House, and I'm Patty Callahan. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>